Good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you again here at Zoe Community Church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if I haven't met you, as always, I'd love to be able to do that. But it's good to see all of you who are normally here again. Um, if you didn't notice, uh, Pastor Jesse is back today. He's technically still on sabbatical until tomorrow. So don't talk to him. Just wait. No, I'm just kidding. He's around. Uh, I think his family, maybe there's some sickness with the kids or something. But it's good to have him back. Uh, it's making me a little nervous. I have to preach in front of him after all this time. I feel like I might not preach long enough to his standards. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Second Samuel chapter 10. I'm going to be continuing our study through the book of 2 Samuel, um, as we do here at Zoe, expository preaching, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, and we are in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel right now. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 10, as you're turning there, takes place after David has become the king, and he has um, received a promise from the Lord about what his future kingdom and also the kingdom of his future son will eventually be. Um, he is kind of put into power by the Lord, and he has conquered all these people. And Second Samuel 10 kind of picks up on the story. Um, after we saw last week his kindness to Mephibosheth, we see now a war with Ammon and Syria. You can read with me starting in verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and sent them away. When it was told to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And then it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Chobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. 
And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and we ask for your help, for your spirit to help us as your people to understand your word, to receive it rightly, to have it begin to transform our lives for your glory and our good. We ask, Lord, for all these things that we read and learn about to point us to Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we continue our study through the book of Second Samuel, we find ourselves in what to me feels like somewhat familiar territory. And I don't mean that in necessarily a good way. Uh, we've read a ton of battle stories in this book of the Bible. If I can be honest with you, after preaching three or four stories and passages about wars in the book of Samuel, I found it was difficult for me to get into. In fact, I was talking to one of you a few months ago, and you were saying, you know, I'm reading along with you in the book of Samuel, and, and I keep reading about these wars and these Ammonites and these whateverites, and I don't know what that means. And I could understand the frustration. I could understand a little bit of the challenge there. It reminds us that as we read the Bible, it's not necessarily the case that every book was written or every chapter was written for us to give a perfect 45-minute message to. These were written for our instruction, but not always easy for us to, in every section, find out exactly what the spiritual point is. Now, why do I say that to you? Obviously, I'm going to preach a sermon. I'm going to tell you some stuff about the scripture, but I want to encourage you. That as we study scripture, even though it can be hard, we're committed to it and to expository preaching because we believe that this is the word of God, that God doesn't waste his breath. Every part of scripture has a part to play. It is important. And even if it's more challenging or maybe sometimes feels a little bit dry, the scriptures are inspired and profitable if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and we understand that this is part of the whole counsel of God. So what we need, of course, is the help of the Holy Spirit and the faith to really trust and believe that in his word he has instruction for us always. This might not seem like an easy passage to figure out. On the one hand, it's just this simple survey of war with the Ammonites and the Syrians. But on the other hand, if you're reading it, you do have to ask the question, what does this have to do with me? What is the meaning of this passage to Christians living today? And so to answer that question, let me just off the bat, before we get into the text, offer up two uh, encouragements as you study the scriptures and passages like this. Okay, first of all, when we look at passages about war in the Bible, we often find that even though there are, are, are different nations at war, there are really two sides to the conflict. There is God's side and the other side. There is those who are fighting on the Lord's behalf and those who are fighting against him. And that's really what is the context of all of these stories of war and battle in the Bible. It's not so concerned about who's fighting on the world stage, but the fact that the people of this world are oftentimes in opposition to the Lord. And then the second thing we need to understand is that while we can see in these stories about what happens in these battles between God and the nations and the people of the world, we also see how people then can find the hope of peace with God. And so that's what we're going to see today. Lord willing, in this passage about war with the Ammonites and the Syrians and the Israelites. So let's get right into it. Okay, we're going to be looking through this chapter in three parts, starting in verses 1 through 6, where we see the slight, okay, the slight, which warns us to receive God's kindness. 
Now, when I say the slight, you guys know what I mean. What is a slight? It's kind of like a little insult. Uh, just to give you a quick illustration, uh, Pastor Jesse and I, we used to go to In-N-Out about every week or every other week, and there was a worker who worked there, and he began to know um, us and recognize us for, for being there as regulars. And so he would always say hi to us, and every time we would go in, he would say, hey, Jesse, welcome back to Jesse and Company. That's what he would call me, and Company. So that's kind of a slight, right? That's a silly one, but a slight is just an insult. It's a, a rude kind of response, an action that kind of demeans or belittles someone else. And in this passage, where we began is with a huge slight, actually a huge insult from the Ammonites against David. Verse 1, it tells us that after the king of the Ammonites died, his son Hanun reigned in his place. And David hears about the death of this king, whose name was Nahash, and he decides to send his condolences to his son Hanun by way of his servants or royal messengers. Now, why is that? The passage says it's because at some point Nahash, the father of, Nah of Hanun, had dealt loyally with David. Now, if you're reading through this for the first time, you might wonder who exactly was Nahash? Who was this Ammonite king? It turns out he turns up in the book of Samuel before. All the way back in 1 Samuel 11, Nahash was actually at war with the people of Israel. So it's interesting. If you look back at 1 Samuel 11, you'll see that Nahash, when he shows up in the story, he's not this like nice guy. He's not this kind ruler. He actually comes to the people of Israel and he threatens to destroy the area of Jabesh Gilead. And then he says, the only way I'm going to make peace with you is if I gouge out all of your eyes, your right eyes. If I take an eye from every one of you, that's what kind of guy Nahash was. So Nahash, he wasn't this, this, this nice, easygoing fellow. And yet David apparently had a good relationship with him. At some point, apparently, he had been kind to David. The passage says that he had dealt loyally with David. Maybe it was when David was on the run from Saul. Maybe it was when David was uh, kind of out and about kind of working for the Philistines and other people. We don't know exactly what happened, but at some point, he had treated David kindly. And it's interesting because the word here to talk about how he had dealt loyally with David, it's the same word we talked about last week a lot, hesed. He actually showed kindness to David before in some way. And so David says, I want to show kindness in return to his son. And just like last week how he had shown kindness to the son of Jonathan, his friend, he now wants to show kindness to the son of his other acquaintance, Nahash. He, maybe he's feeling pretty good about Hesed. He saw how it worked out with Mephibosheth. But what happens in the story? Things don't go as expected. Instead of receiving David's kindness, his condolences, the new king of the Ammonites responds with a rejection of his kindness and a pursuit of war instead of peace. Verse 3 shows us what happens. If you look at the text, his advisors tell him, don't trust David. Don't receive his messengers. This isn't a gesture of peace. It is an undercover mission. It's not an olive branch. It is a Trojan horse. They say David wants to spy us out and take us over, and Hanun believes them. He sides with them, and he decides to take action against the messengers. And what does he do? He shaves off half of their beards and cuts off half their clothing. Now, it's thousands of years later, right? We don't know exactly what all that is supposed to mean. I had a thought in my mind over the past few weeks I was going to grow out a beard and I was going to shave it in half when I preached this sermon so I would show it to you, but I got kind of sick of how it felt. Um, but you can understand, right? We don't know exactly the cultural context. 
But it would be silly. It would look ridiculous. And that was the whole point. It was to shame them, embarrass them, humiliate them. When it says that they cut off their garments at the waist, it was basically to, to make them pantless. Where you all had that dream where you show up somewhere with no pants. This is what the messengers of David experience at the hands of Hanun. Verse 5 says that when they experienced this, they were greatly ashamed. It was an insult. It was a slight meant to shame and humiliate and emasculate these men. And David hears of it. And he has compassion on his messengers, and he tells them, just wait in Jericho, grow back your beards before you come back, and you have to take up your political positions and posts in Jerusalem. But the damage is already done. Now, I've just kind of paraphrased the passage. What happens in verse 6? I find it so interesting that immediately after doing all this, the Ammonites realize exactly what they've done. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. What the text tells us is that when they did this to David, they knew it would make him angry. They knew that it would not lead to peace but war. They knew it would make them a stench in David's nose. And so they even go and hire this army to help them because they know they've opened up this can of worms and there is no going back. And the question that we need to ask if we're studying this passage carefully is why? Why would they do that? Why would they go about this, this course of action knowing that it would lead to war? Knowing that it would lead to retaliation? Why in the world with Hanun, this, this new king, who wasn't already at war with Israel, seek to mistreat David's messengers? Why would he poke the bear? Well, the text tells us again the reason. It's because he was convinced that David wanted to overthrow his rule, that David wanted to be in charge. So instead of receiving David's kindness, he rejects it. And his response, though foolish, is to take that olive branch and basically toss it in the fire. And this response that Hanun has to David really warns us about something. That as people who live in a world that's often at odds with God, we need to be careful about not rejecting kindness, especially the kindness of the king. See, this passage is about a story that happened thousands of years ago. But all of us, the Bible says, are recipients of God's kindness all the time. That God is kind to the people that he has created and put into this world. And yet we live in a world where, if we're honest, so many of us, most of the people in this world, refuse to acknowledge that kindness and even reject it. They do not want to acknowledge God or honor him. The Bible tells us in Romans 1, and that is why in Romans 1, they have suppressed the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. And like the king of the Ammonites, most of the people in this world are not content to just say no thanks to God, but the rejection leads to insult and injury. Have you ever noticed that that oftentimes the people who grow up in church, who've heard all of the truth and reject it, they're the ones who are most vitriolic about it. They're the most angry at God and Jesus Christ. They're the ones who are most insolent and passionately hateful about their rejection of the Bible. Or tell me anything about any bizarre belief or strange thing in the world, but don't ever talk to me about the Bible. Don't ever talk to me about Jesus Christ. Why is that the case? Why do people reject God's kindness? 
The gospel is good news. It is a news of kindness that you can be forgiven and redeemed. Why do so many reject that kindness? The same reason Hanun rejected David. They want to be in charge. You guys understand what I'm getting at? Do you understand what this text is pointing us to about human nature? A few months ago, my kids were asking me, um, we were swimming in a lake around here. They were asking, are there alligators in this lake? Okay. And I, I, I try to never lie to my kids. So I said, yes, they have seen alligators in this lake, but no one has died of an alligator attack in Texas since 1836. Now, I went online and I looked it up and it turns out I was wrong. Someone died in 2015, okay? So 1836 and then 2015, a man named Tommy died. And, and here's the story of what happened with Tommy. He was hanging out in a bar by a bayou down in southern Texas, and he decided to go for a late-night swim. Now, the owner of the bar had seen in the bayou a huge 14-foot alligator for the past week or two, and he had put up signs saying no swimming, but Tommy wanted to go for a swim. So he started to head down towards it. The bartender began to plead with him, don't go into the water. They've seen this huge alligator in there, and Tommy wouldn't listen. He rejected everything that she had to say, and as Tommy was going, his girlfriend, who was with him, saw an alligator swim out from under a dock into the water. And she said, Tommy, don't go in the water. I just saw a huge alligator. And Tommy, in response, uttered these infamous last words, forget that gator, in much more colorful language. Now, I don't mean to make light of this story, but why did Tommy do that? Can you guys understand? I mean, maybe it seems foolish to you, but can you understand why he did it? Why did he go swimming still? Why did he mock the alligator? Why did he go in with this 14-foot predator? It's simple. He wanted to go swimming, and he wasn't about to let anyone else tell him what he could or couldn't do. It's the same reason why Hanun rejected the kindness of David. It's the same reason why the world rejects the kindness of God. The Bible tells us that at the root of so many of our problems as human beings is the fact that our natural bent, our sinful basic desire is that we want to be God. We don't want God to be in charge. And that simple truth explains a lot about the world and why there are so many stories of war in the Bible. We read it in the scripture, right? We read it earlier. In Psalm 2, why do the people of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed? Because they want to burst the bonds and cast away God's cords from them. At the end of the day, the stories of the Bible show us that mankind turns against God, a God who has given us everything, who gives us even the ability to think and to move and to act, in whom we live and move and have our being, and we blaspheme him. We mock his name. We spit upon his word. We pervert his truth because we don't want anyone else to tell us what we can or cannot do. We don't want anyone else to tell us where we can or cannot swim. We want to be in charge. You guys know that the Bible, uh, for an ancient book, is more well-attested than any book in antiquity, right? Than anything that you can look up from thousands of years ago. Nothing else is as close to the Bible in its historicity, its authenticity, anything about that. It is without parallel. Yet people go and they spend their whole lives getting PhDs in how to disprove this book. Why? Because it's not just a book about stories. It claims to be the truth that God is in charge and you are not. And one day he will judge the whole world at the end. You know, I had a friend who was a doctor, or who is a doctor, who wanted to do end-of-life care. 
where they cared for not just the bodies, but the souls of the people who were headed towards death. And he remarked to me that, that it was sad to him that even in the face of death and eternity, when he would talk to people about the gospel, so many of them at that point in their life, knowing they were going to meet their maker, they were completely rejected the kindness of God. They didn't want to hear it, have anything to do with it, because they didn't want him to be in control. They would rather be a stench in the nose of the king than submit themselves to him. This is what the first part of this passage reminds us of. And so it teaches us not to reject kindness, but to receive it instead. Romans 2, verse 3 says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is better to receive than to reject kindness. And the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance so we might receive his kindness all the more. I don't know if somebody here needs to hear that. I don't know exactly where you all are in your walk with God. Don't presume upon the kindness of the Lord. He offers kindness now to everyone. So receive it. Nevertheless, in our story, the Ammonites repaid kindness with an insult and a slight, and it leads to war. And this moves us then to the showdown between the Ammonites, their allies, the Syrians, and the armies of David who serve under the living God. And so the second part of this passage, verses 7 through 12, we move from the slight to the strategy. The strategy which teaches us to take courage in God's providence. Let's look at the passage, starting in verse 7. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. Now you can stop right there in response to the Ammonites assembling an army of, of men and, and allies from Syria. David sends Joab and the hosts of the mighty men. And if you have read this story before, if you read the book of Second Samuel before, you know that there are these guys called the mighty men. And it's one of the cooler parts, especially when you're a kid of reading the Bible, uh, when it talks about David's mighty men in the end of Second Samuel. We'll get there eventually, where it talks about their great feats and how they did these kind of almost superhuman things in battles, where one guy slew 800 people by himself, where another guy uh, had was fighting so hard that his, his, his sword basically got stuck to his hand. That was the image given to us about these mighty men. Joab is the general who commands David's armies. And he is sent with these mighty men to go against the Ammonites. And the Ammonites, verse 8, came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Machah were by themselves in the open country. So here's the picture that's being painted. David's army shows up at the city of Hanun, but the situation turns out to be not in their favor. Even though Joab and the mighty men with their hosts come, they find that the Ammonites are in front of them in the city, ready for battle, but all of a sudden behind them appears another army. Right? Do you guys understand what's going on? Right? They get there, they're going to besiege this city that had basically declared war on David, and then all of a sudden they look back, and over the horizon there are these 34,000 Syrians coming to surround them. They are between a rock and a hard place. In any case, based on my own personal experience of playing video games, I believe they call that a pincer attack, okay? Uh, two forces converging on a common enemy. Kind of like um, 
in the Battle of Helm's Deep, you know, when, when Gandalf shows up at the end, except the orcs are the good guys here, okay? What am I saying? The text wants us to see that this appeared to be a dire situation for Joab and his men. Joab and the mighty men and the host, they're there. They, they go from maybe a point of confidence to all of a sudden feeling trapped, actually literally being trapped. Now, this is a historical story. It happened in real life thousands of years ago. So we don't have to get allegorical with it, but, but let me just ask you a simple question to kind of bring it to our real life. Have you ever felt like you were in a battle? Or better yet, have you ever felt like you were surrounded on all sides by those who despise and reject the kindness of God? I think if you are a Christian, if you are a faithful follower of Christ, it will naturally, inevitably be the case that you feel that way at some point in your life. Psalm 2 reminds us that it's not just the Ammonites and Syrians who set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. All the nations of the world do this. And we are not a church that is a post-millennial, if that means anything to you. We don't believe that this status quo is just going to change until Christ returns and judges and rules. So before then, in, in what the time we live in now, the normal course of this world, is that the nations of the world, the people of the world, will be set against God. And if you are part of God's people, you will feel at times surrounded. You will feel that you are trapped in the front and the back with enemies all around. Do you understand that feeling? I don't know whether or not we're in like a great tribulation period yet. I don't think so, but you can definitely see the signs of rejection of God growing, right? You guys know, I mean, you guys talk to me about it. I think you understand. You've seen this in our culture. So many of you in your workplaces, you know that to hold to your convictions about what the word of God says in certain areas, particularly like the sanctity of life or the holiness of sexuality as being designed by God to be experienced in a committed, faithful marriage between a man and woman, those types of things will make you shunned and mocked or at the very least misunderstood. And the media that our kids consume, you, you maybe start to feel as we go along in the world that we're more and more under attack, so to speak. Even things that might seem innocuous. I was watching PBS with my kids and something came on in kind of the inter uh, part of the show that was teaching them at a very young age that the key to real happiness is to reject God's design in every area of life, in marriage, in gender, in purpose, in morality. See, how do we feel about being Christians in 2022? Be honest about it. How do you feel about being a Christian in 2032, 10 years from now? Even though very few of us have been boots-on-the-ground warriors, we can still understand what Joab and Abishai, his brother, with enemies in front and behind, probably felt. And if so, these verses that speak about a military strategy still speak to us. Look at verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear. He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. Joab takes center stage, and he comes up with a plan. Now, Joab is the nephew of King David. He's the general of his armies. He was a great warrior, but he was not a guy who had kept his hands clean. He wasn't a boy scout by any means. If you guys remember in the story, Joab murdered Abner in cold blood. 
he went and, and he took him to the side to talk to him. And he just stabbed him and killed him right there. Surprisingly, Joab, who is not the greatest guy, is shown here to be still a man of faith. And people are disturbed by this, okay? How can Joab, the murderer, the vengeful man, how can he be a man of faith? Well, the text shows us in Joab and in Nahash that every one of us is a sinner. And what separates some sinners from others really is the response to the king. So in this battle, the Bible uses Joab to show us how we ought to relate to our heavenly king in the midst of any battle. So let's learn the lessons of his strategy. First, he splits the army. He takes his best men to fight against the Syrian mercenaries, and he leaves the other half of the army to fight with Abishai against the Ammonites who are at the front of the city gate. He speaks to his brother, and he tells him this, and this lengthy speech deserves our attention because it is the longest dialogue in this part of the Bible, in this chapter. Look at verses 11 and 12. He said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So what's the first strategy that he employs? He and his brother will help one another. It's given in a very concise way. But if I start to lose, if I struggle, you come and aid me. And if you start to struggle, I will come and aid you. This isn't like super high level strategy, okay? It's simple but it's profound. The world is set against God's anointed. The world is always set against God's people. There's also the truth that those who serve God still have one another. If you feel trapped by the world and beaten down by a world that sets itself against God and his anointed, realize that just like Job and Abishai, the Bible tells us that you are not without brothers in the fight. You guys see that? Even in this situation of being surrounded, he and his brother are called to help one another. In a few weeks, we're going to have our annual summer men's ministry, which is focused not on meat, but on biblical brotherhood. How good it is for brothers to dwell in unity and to encourage one another. How a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And part of that is encouraging each other. And part of that is strengthening one another in the fight against the world, sin, and the devil. And so we see in this passage even this strengthening of brother to brother, but verse 12, what else? Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. First strategy is that the brothers will help one another. The second strategy is that he and Abishai and all the mighty men will entrust themselves to the Lord. They will take courage and trust in God's providence. What is providence? It's God's arranging of all things according to his perfect plan. It's not much of a military strategy, right? Just trust God. But it's the only strategy that will always work. In this whole passage, only Joab utters the name of Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? Joab, who is no Boy Scout, like I said. Joab, who is a murderer, speaks the truth here. God sometimes uses the mouth of babies and donkeys and even murderers to speak the truth. He tells us, let us be courageous for our people and the cities of our God and the Lord Yahweh will do what seems good to him. This is a statement of great faith from the mouth of a sinner. What does this statement say? Let us have courage. Let us have conviction. Let us have confidence 
in the Lord. Let's not lose heart. Let us be bold in the face of opposition. Let us hold to our conviction that we are the people of God, that to be on God's side is always the right side. And finally, let us be confident, not in our own victory, in our own strength, but that if we are courageous and act according to conviction, the Lord will do what seems good to him, and we can be all right with that. That's some good stuff, but it's really, really hard. Not just for Joab and Abishai in the face of physical death, but for you and for me, whatever battles we find ourselves in. See, if humanity sets itself against God because we don't want him to be in charge, if that's kind of the basic nature of all people, then it follows that the right response of those who claim to be for God is to submit to him, to let him do what he will do. If we have trusted in God, if we have truly put our hope in him, then what else should we do in the face of opposition but stir one another up to courage and conviction and confidence in the Lord? This attitude was mirrored 500 years later in exile after the people of Israel had been utterly defeated physically, okay? They, They had gone through a lot of battles and eventually they really lost bad in the exile. They were taken away into Babylon, into another country. Everything was destroyed and broken down and yet there were three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood before Nebuchadnezzar when he told them to bow down to an idol. He said, if you don't bow down, I will destroy you. Don't you know that no one will save you from me throwing you into a burning furnace. And you guys maybe don't remember, but this is what they said in response. They said, oh, king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, oh, king. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Men of courage and conviction and confidence. That we're going to trust God's providence and whether or not he delivers us, we're still going to trust him. We're going to keep trusting him. See, the fight isn't against this world. It's mostly in us. The fight is whether or not we are going to have faith to trust in the Lord no matter what happens. Okay, what are we about at Zoe? Okay, we proclaim with courage and conviction what the Bible says is true. That's what we want to do. What is right and important. We want to tell you God's word. Hopefully every Sunday that's what you hear. That it's his word and not ours. That, that God is in charge. That what he says goes. That what he will do is right. But then how do we live it out? If we really believe that this is the truth. We're faithful and obedient to it especially in the times when it feels like we are surrounded back and front by enemies. I don't want to like downplay this at all. This is really hard to do. Your job may be threatened if you live by courage and conviction. Your children, who you love and you may be raised in the church, some of them may reject it, will turn against God, and they will turn against you in the process and say, don't ever tell me about that Jesus stuff again. The culture will reject you. There will be moments where you feel trapped. What we will have to do is fight alongside our brothers and sisters to hold to the truth, to do what is right, to believe and trust in God's providence. If the Lord wills, we may be victorious, as Joab and Abishai were in this case. 
in the small battles of the workplace or the culture or parenting or family. But even if not, we will bow down only to our God. And we're prepared to fight the fight of faith, to trust in him. This is what Joab and Abishai model. This is the strategy that by God's grace brings in this battle triumph over his enemies. And this leads us then to the final part of this story. We've seen the slight, we've seen the strategy, and finally we see the surrender. The surrender in verses 13 through 19, which invites us to submit ourselves to God's rule. Finally, the last verses of this chapter tell us how the war eventually ends up going. Like I already said, Joab and Abishai, they win. So Joab fights with the mighty men against the Syrians, and they flee. It's pretty quick. They, they don't put up much of a fight. And as they flee, the Ammonites who are by the city, they see what's going on out there, and they decide, you know what, I'm done. I'm out. I'm going back inside, shutting the door. I bit off more than I could chew. And so Joab and Abishai, in this battle, they are victorious, and they go back to Jerusalem. But it's not the end of the war. There is still more. The Syrians have one final plan up their sleeves. They regather in verse 15 into a super coalition, an alliance of the north, in order to come against David one more time. And Hadadezer, verse 16, sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. He brings reinforcements. They came to Hilam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Hilam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. The Syrians and the Ammonites, they won't go down without a fight. They also don't want the Lord's king to rule. They bring more cities into the war with them, but we already know from chapter 8 that they are ultimately defeated. Verse 18 tells us, in fact, that this is exactly what happens. They're destroyed, and the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. There's something here at the end of chapter 10 that we need to see as we close up the chapter. Last week I spoke at length about the Hebrew word hesed. God's loving kindness. I said it was a super important Hebrew word to know in the Old Testament, just to know for your study of the Bible. But I also mentioned another big Hebrew word, shalom, right? The Hebrew word for peace. That's what happens in this passage. The word peace. They made peace with Israel and became subject to them. Now, this is a general word for peace. It can talk about the end of a military conflict as it does here. But nevertheless, that word peace, shalom, is a heavy, weighty word. Even today, the greeting of most Jews, if you were to go to Israel, is shalom, peace. Or more formally, peace be with you. So don't miss this vital point. When it comes to those who have rejected God's kindness, who have set themselves against the Lord, who have chosen war instead of hesed, there's still hope for them. What is the hope in this passage that when we recognize the error of our ways— we can make peace. We can have peace through surrender. The Syrians, who are defeated by David, make peace with him. And the text tells us they are afraid to align themselves with his enemies any longer. The picture of surrender. Not just with the Syrians and David, but for the nations of this world, the people of this world, and God. 
when I was growing up in church, uh, we used to talk about surrender a lot. We used to sing about it a lot. But let me remind you what it means. It means to lay down your arms, right? It means to open up the gates and, and put out the red carpet, so to speak. It means to stop fighting against God and instead to submit to him, to welcome him in to be the one who sits on the throne. And it's a beautiful picture of how the good news of Jesus, his gospel message, really works. And for those who have never responded to this for the first time, they realize the error of their ways. They realize their sinfulness, their lostness, that the end of that sin is judgment. And they repent. They turn away from it. They seek instead in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, peace. It's also a picture of how the gospel works for those who have already believed. Growing up, I learned this lesson from my parents, like I said, talking about surrender. I remember there was an area of moral kind of grayness in our life at the family that for, for years we never seemed to worry about. And one day we just stopped doing it. I don't want to go into what the details of it were because my parents might listen. <laughs> But I remember my father explaining to me when I asked him about it, something to the effect of the longer I walk with the Lord, right? The more I grow to see areas of my life that I haven't submitted to him, but I need to surrender. What really struck me was that the loss of that thing in our family's life, it wasn't a sad thing. I don't regret that we stopped doing that. In fact, it was good. God, in this area, I will not align myself anymore with the world but I will surrender and instead find peace with you. That's the Christian life over and over again. And the characters in this chapter remind us that while there is God's side and the world's side in these battles, no matter how bad or good you think you've been, every single one of us is a person who needs to surrender. Every single one of us needs to find this peace with God. Look at who the characters are. Nahash, a vicious king a bloodthirsty guy who is said to have been loyal. And Joab, a bloodthirsty killer, a murderer in cold blood who expresses surprising faith and courage. And David, a king who will in just a few short sentences fall into one of the most terrible sins we have recorded in the Bible. And so it is the gospel truth that when we understand the depths of our own sin, when we understand what depravity is, the Christian life is just as much Victory to victory as surrender to surrender. Surrendering to the Lord. And so the Syrian defeat, the consequent surrender, is a picture of the truth that just because we were at once war with God, we were once at war with God, we don't have to stay that way. And when we find ourselves surrendering to the Lord and no longer fighting against him, we receive not just loving kindness, but also peace. We say it often, but I don't think we can say it enough. But if I could give just a nugget of truth to this generation growing up in, in the world today, especially younger people here, youth, from all the sermons that we make you listen to on Sunday afternoons, remember that peace, the peace that the world seeks, the peace that everyone wants, is really only found in surrendering to God and to Jesus, his anointed king. So as we finish up this chapter about battles and wars, this is what we learn. The slight, the strategy, the surrender. 
Now, if I'm really honest, I'm not usually one for war stories, okay? It's not my favorite uh, genre of movie. The Bible tells us that the truth is we are all in a war. But though it is a long war, it will come to an end. And so we end in Psalm 2, where we keep popping back to this afternoon. What does Psalm 2 say? After explaining the judgment against all who rebel against God, in verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Amen. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. It's my hope that this story from Scripture would help us to be blessed, to not reject, but to receive the kindness of Jesus Christ, to take courage in his providence, especially when we are surrounded on all sides, and to surrender and fully submit to his rule so that we can find true peace. Let's pray. Father God, we we admit that our natural state is to be those who are at war with you. Enemies of God, disobedient, dishonorable, Lord, not wanting you to rule, but wanting instead for us to be God. And yet, in Jesus Christ, you did something amazing. You sent your own Son, to this world to die on the cross for our sins, to rise from the dead, to give us new life, and to invite us, to welcome us, to find peace with you through the good news of the gospel. Lord, we pray that as we remember Christ, we take communion together, that we would be amazed at what you have done, that we would have hearts that are full of, of, of true thanksgiving. Also, that you would minister to us through this remembrance of Jesus, that we have been given tremendous grace. We can stand firm and we can trust and we can have confidence in you in all things. Lord, thank you. We praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.